Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back to the Primate Cast. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, and today is Thursday, August 28th, 2014. Now, this podcast is the first in a series of podcasts of our coverage of this year's 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society, which was held between August 11th and 16th of this year in Hanoi, Vietnam, the venue being the Milia Hotel, pretty close to the city center. Now, I was there with a retinue of graduate students, actually, who posed as volunteers for the Primate Cast uh, and helped to get a number of interviews, which I'll get to in a moment. Now, of course, my main purpose there, um, well, actually, I had a number of purposes there. First, of course, being um, presenting recent work that I've conducted and my team has conducted. So exciting for me. This was the first time that I was uh, on papers, contributing to papers as a supervisor. And so our team had six different papers, um, both oral presentations and poster presentations that were that were presented at this Congress. And so I had a, a number of proud sensei moments. Um, and so I'd like to congratulate all the members of my team who did a great job at the Congress. Uh, but in addition to the scientific program, which I enjoyed very much, I was also tasked with manning or partly manning an exhibit that Kyoto University set up for its Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology, SCICASP, where I work and, as you all know, is hosting this podcast series. In addition to that, we were also exhibiting a new graduate program set up by Kyoto University and Professor Tetsuro Matsuzawa. Now, this is called the Leading Graduate Program in Primatology and Wildlife Science, and it is designed as a tack-on program for students already enrolled at Kyoto University, either through SciCASP or through more traditional routes. And it is meant to provide additional education, training, and importantly, financial support for various research activities. And it was really fun to be able to talk about these programs with interested and enthusiastic young students and researchers, but also to talk with established researchers and faculty at other universities around the world who may not uh, really know too much about the possibilities for, say, their own undergraduate or graduate students to continue their educations in Japan. And so we did have a great time with that. The booth was quite busy, but perhaps slightly more selfishly, from at least the perspective of this, the primate cast, the booth was also a great place to stick a microphone. And so I was, in addition to promoting and presenting, very busy gathering these interviews. And so, as I mentioned, I did have a bunch of students helping. And so we were able to rack up a total of 20 interviews, which we're going to show uh, in the coming month and a half, say, over the course of five to six podcasts, which will be, as best as I can, broken down thematically. So we'll cover issues like uh, primate conservation, as well as the issues, uh, issues related to disease, uh, in relation to primate conservation. We'll hear from the organizers, both Dr. Bert Covert and Dr. Steve Shapiro, actually a bit later on in this very podcast, and from a number of other researchers and conservationists from around the world of primatology. So I really hope that everybody stays with us here, enjoys the series, um, and let's get a conversation going uh, over our social media feed. So you can find us on Twitter, Facebook. We're always open to chat about anything that happens on the Primate Cast. Now, before getting into our interviews later in this podcast with some of the organizers of the conference, I thought it would be a good idea to first check in with the students, um, or three of the four students actually, who helped us 
conduct these interviews and, and rack up all the episodes that we're going to be able to, to present to you in the, in the coming weeks. So I'm just going to get right into introducing them. And then followed by that, we're going to hear a little bit about their own um, experiences at the Congress, what they were there to present, as well as their experiences working for the Prime Cast. And so I hope you enjoy that. Uh, this seems like a good model that I'm going to try to pursue at future events uh, as well. Um, so without further ado, here are our students, and I'm just going to take them in order. Sayuri Takeshita from Brazil, Lucy Regai from France, and Yana Kim from Korea, South Korea. Yep. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Bonjour. So what were you here presenting, Sayuri? Yeah, uh, I presented the, my, the work that I did for my master thesis, and it was about adrenal hormonal evaluation in Japanese monkeys. So basically, we compared two different conditions, like the, the social condition and individual condition, individuals housed in single cages. And we found that adrenal hormones, they increase in the single cage condition. And we also tested the effects of season and age and social behavior in, in the monkeys living in, in the outdoor enclosure. And we found that uh, glucocorticoids are higher in the mating season, which is winter in Japan. And fecal glucocorticoids are also negatively correlated with temperature. Also, we found that adrenal hormones decrease with age. But unfortunately, uh, we could not find any relationship with social behavior. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned uh, earlier that you were interested in the endocrinology and conservation uh, right. session. So this is kind of something that you're aiming to do maybe back in Brazil at some point. Yes. Um, now for my PhD research, I'm focusing on free-ranging populations. But for the future, yes, I, I'm planning to go back to Brazil and work for conservation of new tropical primates. And so, Yena, you were at the Congress presenting a poster, that's correct? So how yes. Was so I, I gave a poster presentation about my recent study that I conducted in captive orangutans. And my research interests in prosociality and reciprocity. And previously, I tested whether orangutans voluntarily share the food reward with their conspecifics, and I found that they did, didn't share the food reward with their conspecifics with at little or no cost. Mm -hmm. And the recent study that I did is to see whether the orangutans also share some kind of sensitivity to detect detect the free riders. Uh, and the most widely tested experimental paradigm is to see whether animals have sensitivity to iniquity. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <clears throat> and many of the experimental studies so far has done only done in group living primates, for example, chimpanzees and capuchins. And the experimental paradigm is just the, the one animal do some kind of action and this animal have small reward, but the one next to them has a bigger reward. Mm -hmm. And to see whether this animal keep doing the keep doing the experiment or reject the experiment. So the whether, famous example being the Franz de Waal study exactly, on YouTube exactly. that you can find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Capuchin just throw the cucumber, yeah. things like that. But what I did is because orangutans live more solitary life, and the outcome based judgment might not necessarily critical for their natural life. So I 
rather wanted to see whether they are sensitive to detect a nice person or a mean person. So I gave the humans role, like giving the food always to the orangutans or always eat for themselves. Mm-hmm. And then see whether orangutans behave differently toward mm-hmm. the nice human and mean human. And I found orangutans behave selfishly toward the familiar human when they behave selfishly toward orangutans. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. That, so we had an interview um, with Dr. Jim Anderson mm-hmm. from the Japan Society of Animal Psychology Conference, and mm-hmm. he presented data it's in some ways similar, using human models mm-hmm. to do some kind of either a pro-social or an anti-social behavior towards another, and then seeing mm-hmm. the reaction the capuchins had mm-hmm. um, to them. And they had a similar outcome that the capuchins... Prefer yeah, the nice human. Yeah, prefer the, yes. the, the, the humans that were pro-social that helped the other one. True. So the main difference between that experiment and my experiment is uh, cap- in that uh, Dr. Anderson's experiment, capuchin, what capuchin can do is just get the food from the person that he prefer. Mm-hmm. But I gave a orangutan active role mm-hmm. to give the food or not to give the food toward human to see whether orangutans behave changed mm-hmm. after they experience humans being selfish or humans being prosocial. Mm-hmm. So that's the main difference. And capuchins were able to detect the nice person or mean po- person and they Based on that, they prefer nice person. Mm-hmm. And in my experiment, orangutans just uh, behaved selfishly toward right. the familiar humans being selfish. I think it's because it violated their expectations. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yes. Because with the familiar humans, they often had uh, own, always nice interactions humans al- always give food toward them so they have formed this kind of high expectations from this human but since they broke this expectation that's how they behaved that's why behaved selfish it way it sounds like it has far-reaching implications for how we see expectation in mm-hmm. <laughs> and and lucy how about you you were you were giving an oral presentation Yes, I was presenting a study that I've done in France on multimodal sexual signaling, uh, multimodal sexual signaling in olive baboons. So I was showing that females display a large variety of signals, like uh, the size of the swelling, copulation calls, behaviors, but also maybe olfactory cues that can indicate to males that ovulation is close. And we also show in this study that different males have different access to signals, so it could be a strategy for females to have an indirect mate choice, but it's also a good strategy for males to have different cues, so they don't spend so much energy in consortship, sperm production, mm-hmm. and all those kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's why I presented. Mm-hmm. And so we have uh, an interview on this podcast series with Dr. James Hyam, so I assume, well, who's the co-author of yours on the talk yes. you presented. So I think it was the first time you, you actually met him at this congress. Yeah, it was the first time I met him and he, has, he was here during my talk, so I was so stressed. <laughs> but it was, it was nice and it's good because we are still uh, working together with my French supervisor, Cecile Garcia. Mm-hmm. And now we are conducted kind of similar topic, but in Japanese macaques. And we are trying to extend so the role of the signal in this species, but also in conception. So it's still an ongoing project. And unfortunately, we didn't have so much time to talk together. Sure. It was hard to find people. And 
Yeah, maybe I was too afraid. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the biggest problem. Like in the conferences, it's, it's hard to find people, and when you do find them, it's hard to like get attention. So, and also like the, the space, like it's very, it was very small, so everybody was like bumping to each other. Like it was quite. You know, restrict. Yeah, it's kind of a, a strange and odd contrast where you have this really limited amount of space, but at the same time, it's still quite difficult. I mean, to find people, but also to to interrupt them during their conversations true, with other people, true. especially as students. So, <laughs> so in that context, then I want to mm-hmm. ask you guys about your experiences doing interviews for the podcast. So, mm-hmm. one of my, I mean, when we set this up, obviously, I have selfish reasons for doing this because it's hard for me alone just to to tack up all of these interviews. So it was mm-hmm. really nice. Um, having you guys and also um, one student who's not here, Cecile Sarabian, mm-hmm. who also racked up a few interviews um, for us as well. She's still traveling in, in Vietnam and Southeast Asia, um, but we expect her back here uh, in a month or so. But so I would like to thank everybody, first of all. And then the second reason was not so selfish, I hope, but mm-hmm. was designed to give you guys an incentive maybe to go and meet mm-hmm. the people that you might look up to or respect or um, you know, want to involve in uh, mm-hmm. in your research or run ideas by, and so, so how was that? Yeah, actually, at first I was like, well, why should I get into this podcast interview? <laughs> but then I was thinking, like, it was actually a good idea because it gave me like motivation to actually meet people that is somehow related to my uh, area, and so, for example, I never had the courage to talk to Bika Marques, which who is like a big person in, in, in Brazil, but it was a good opportunity and he's actually very nice like to talk with. Yeah, he, he looked very nice. I had a brief chance to talk with him while you were doing the interview um, and very sincere as well. Yeah, yeah, very much. And, and so the other interviews you, you managed to get were? Yeah, um, James Hyan actually, he, uh, he gave me lots of good advice on my my paper, like actually, like before uh, mm-hmm. my paper that we just published, mm-hmm. and he gave like some feedback before I submit, which was very very useful. And then in the conference, I could like talk to him in person and thank him for the help that he gave me, and he gave even more, okay, like good. more comments for my next um, analysis. So it was good to talk to him. Yeah, not, not to embarrass Dr. Haim too much, but we actually had three three people who were trying to run the podcast or do interviews that wanted to interview him. Seen <laughs> <laughs> Sayeri and also a friend of his, uh, Julie DeBosk, who's a postdoc with us. So I guess I was the lucky one. Yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> if you're listening. Uh, so, and then one more, I believe. Yeah, and then Elisabetta Wieselbergi. Actually, um, I have already uh, contacted her by email because she's... Um, my Italian teacher for the PWS program. Yeah, just to preface this a little bit, there's a, a Kyoto University leading graduate program that started this year, and, and Sairi is one of the students of that program. And one of the missions is to encourage um, multilingual abilities in the students. And so through the primatological community and scientific community, uh, which is kind of the extended network of Professor Matsuzawa, who's the coordinator of this program, one of the goals was to, to, to bring those collaborating scientists as kind of mentors or even tutors or, I don't know, maybe models yeah. um, for language development in the students. So she yeah. is your Italian Yeah, in my case, mentor. that's why I, I picked three, language, three foreign languages, like Japanese, English, and Italian. 
and it's good because I could practice a little bit of Italian that I know. <laughs> but you guys actually spend most of the time speaking Portuguese. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because she speaks Portuguese, which is nice. Because she works in Brazil. Yeah, well, she doesn't work in Brazil, okay. but yeah, her field work was there and she has a lot yes. of like good collaborators in Brazil. So that's why she speaks really good Portuguese. So it was very nice, actually. So your general uh, thoughts on doing interviews and the podcast? It was good. It was a good experience. So you're up for the next one then? Um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy, how about you? Uh, I interview only Joanna Setchell <laughs> because I, yeah, I failed a bit. Well, you lost the lottery <laughs> after Hayam, so. <laughs> but it was very nice. So because, yeah, I, I didn't know how to to meet people and to introduce myself. But I really want to talk to Joanna Setchell. Because I really admire her work and she's, her talk was very, very nice and interesting. So I saw her watching at the painting that we have an exposition in during the IPS. So I was, okay, it's the time, it's the time. So <laughs> I talked to her during maybe 20 minutes about my experiment. And after I said, oh, by the way, <laughs> we had the Psychast podcast. And she really nicely said, oh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for asking. So after I learned that, you already asked her. Well, but, but she was also very gracious. <laughs> yeah, she, she is. So she, she did the interview and it was very, very nice. And I was a little bit selfish, I think, because I mainly asked about what I wanted to know, olfaction, our work now about that and the evolution of olfactory signals. Mm -hmm. But, but it, was it meshes so nice. very well with her own research program. Yeah, so. yeah, it's because she's doing a long term, uh, a long term, uh, how can we say that? Long term study. study? Yeah. So it's very interesting to see that she works on mandrills. She has now a project on baboons. And it's nice to see that in one signal, you can just find many, many different implications and evolution. And it's very interesting. So it was very nice. And yeah, it was very interesting to do that. But it's stressful also for me, I think. <laughs> Does everybody agree? Was it stressful to do interviews? Um I wouldn't say stressful, kind of, because you were always like words, oh my god, I have only three days left and I need to find that <laughs> person. But it, it kind of motivated me because if I didn't have to, I would just like do what most of the people do in that conference, like just go to the presentation day and then hang out around the city. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's I did that, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> well, hanging around the city was, was a good activity as well. So Yana, sure. how about you? Well, I pretty much enjoyed the interviewing the people and I was kind of stayed in the crowd and then looking for prey and I fished <laughs> them <clears throat> and I got three, Dr. Claudia and Dr. Mason and Dr. Nutt. And two of them were very famous in the field of social cognition in primates and also in ravens. And the last one, Cheryl Nutt is super famous in the <laughs> orangutan. Yes, she's a very well-known, respected primatologist. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But I am confused with another girl. So I asked another Cheryl, saying, like, I'm really, really huge. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't say fan, but I really respect your work. So I want to interview in the psychiatrist. But I realized that she's not the same Cheryl <laughs> as I thought. Anyways, it's but I also had the same uh, kind of nice relationship with another Cheryl. She studies Tarsiers. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, so 
the Cheryl Nutt, she studies orangutan, especially in their physiology, energy expenditure, things mm-hmm. like that. So I, yeah, I pretty much enjoyed to have a connection and then I could ask many interesting questions, what I want to listen to. So. Okay, so Sayuri's already given us a, a tentative yes for the next Congress, Chicago 2016. You guys planning to be there? I no. wish. <laughs> I wish I'll be there, but... All right, well... Should yeah, be if, I, if I get funding, of course, I would <laughs> That's always the way. Yes. Okay. Well, we'll see what we can do from the end of the Primate Cast, and hopefully see you guys all next time. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So once again, a big thank you to all of the students, Sairi Takeshita, Yana Kim, Lucy Rigai, and one who was not here, Cecile Sarabian. It was excellent working with you in the Primate Cast, and I look forward to doing so again in the future. Great job, and I hope you enjoy this series as much as I'm going to. So in the first interview in this introductory installment of our podcast coverage of the IPS 2014 Congress in Hanoi, we're going to chat with Dr. Bert Covert. So Dr. Covert is professor and chair of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And along with colleagues, Dr. Steve Shapiro, who we hear from later in this podcast, and his local Vietnamese counterpart, uh, Win Man Hip, Dr. Covert was one of the main organizers of IPS 2014. And so here he is talking about his experiences leading up to and organizing the Congress in Hanoi. I've been conducting research in Vietnam since 1998, and at a conference on Vietnam Southeast Asian conservation back in 2008, in November we had a brief meeting, um, and there was discussion about trying to host IPS Congress sometime in Hanoi. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but there were about 15 people there, lots of excitement, and the next day I was tasked with one of my Vietnamese colleagues to write the bid. And so that was just almost six years ago. Um, Over the next two years, um, it was episodic. I'd work a few hours in a day, send information to colleagues in Vietnam. They would send information back. And over a two-year period, and this is quite easy work, we did put together a 35, 40-page document that was a bid to host the, the Congress, the 2014 Congress. In 2010 in Kyoto, we uh, presented the bid, and um, we were quite pleased that the Vietnam was selected. And so I've been really pleased to watch capacity build over the years. And um, when we were putting the bid in in Kyoto, I had a number of people ask me, do, do you think Vietnam really has what it takes to host a Congress? And um, having traveled around the world, um, I was confident that Denver, Colorado could host major conferences, which it does weekly, that Hanoi could also, um, and actually with a little bit more style in some respects. And we're inclined to agree here with Dr. Covert. The uh, Hanoi Congress was pulled off with a lot of style and flair. Uh, it was a really great place to have a Congress. So in a segment of the interview that we're not showing here, Dr. Covert did mention that the original location or venue for the event was supposed to be somewhere else, um, quite far away from the city center. But in the end, he was quite pleased when it had to move um, back to the Melia, uh, which is a place that was closer to his heart and also closer to the center of activities in Hanoi. So near the old quarter in the center of the city, uh, Huang Kim, with a lot of interesting cafes, eateries, and of course, places to go drinking with colleagues after the activities of the day. So as participants, I and everyone that I know had a great time uh, at this Hanoi Congress. And in the next segment, Dr. Kovar is going to be talking about how the transition was 
from being a participant to numerous congresses over the years to being one of the organizers. Between 2012 and 2014, uh, we did lots of preparations. That, uh, in 2012, I was back on the ground in Hanoi. Uh, we came to the Malia. We looked at different rooms. And at this stage, after having attended uh, professional meetings since 1979, uh, usually two or three a year, it, it, after 30 years of participating, I realized for the first time that a meeting was big business. Uh, we looked at a number of rooms. We looked at an area for posters. We looked at areas for um, setting up and, and looking, reviewing uh, your, proud, uh, your uh, presentation, things I'd done many times without thinking about I'd always seen the meetings through my own eyes. Did it satisfy my needs? And now I was looking at the meetings through the eyes of potentially 900 people. And um, it was slightly daunting. It was also um, one of the big challenges, but this was a fun challenge as an anthropologist, was working closely with Vietnamese counterparts who I absolutely um, love and absolutely trust. And it was always easy working with them. And also working with the IPS um, elected officials in the council who... um, I've known a number of them over the years. We have good professional relationships. And I would share with the IPS group what we were thinking about in Hanoi. And the IPS group would often come back and say, well, this doesn't really make sense. And they would provide me um, sort of a Western model of how something happens. And I was often left with a situation where I clearly understood what my Vietnamese colleagues needed. I clearly understood what my IPS council uh, members were thinking we should do. And I was unclear how I could get these two things together. So a bit more about these anthropological challenges that Dr. Colbert talks about later. But first, you're going to hear him talking about development of the scientific program and the amazing amount of work that had gone into that. Um, Things really picked up last September and October when we did the evaluations for the symposium proposals. We had about 60 proposals come in. We accepted about 50 of them. And during this stage, I would go back and forth from being really excited by reading what the different proposals were and thinking, this is going to be a great session on technology and conservation, or this is going to be a great session on um, great ape cognition, or this is a great session on strepsirines and uh, modeling early primate evolution. Um, and then turning around, realizing, you no, know, I have to get these things out to two people to review. Uh, we got to get the grammar straightened out. Uh, We've we got to start blocking out what the Congress would look like. And then the deadline for the abstracts was January 31st. We received almost 900 abstracts. And um, I felt as the chair of the scientific committee that I really needed to read each and every abstract before I sent it out for review. And, um, and again, this was uh, going back between excitement that, gee, this is really interesting research, to thinking, hmm, should, who should I send this to to review? Or reading a propos- an abstract that I knew there was something interesting there, I just couldn't understand what it was trying to share with me. And, um, and so, again, it was um, Bert, the college professor, absent-minded, meeting big business, and that not only did we need to get 900 abstracts out to two people to review and encourage them to uh, accommodate one-third of the uh, people submitting abstracts were English as in the first language uh, to try to make the abstracts a little bit better, but also working with the software for IPS that um, for me to open up an abstract to read it would take maybe a minute and a half, was slower than one might anticipate. To make a single change um, wording in an abstract might take five minutes to work my way through. Selecting two reviewers and sending it out was just one or two minutes, but this eight or nine minutes times 900, um, 
it doesn't require fuzzy map. It, it was a lot of work. And um, by the middle of April, when we'd reviewed all the abstracts and we were sitting down for a weekend, Steve Shapiro of the IPS Council, Jonathan O'Brien, one of my graduate students, and myself, uh, we two days, eight hours each day, we put together the program. Um, Steve had done a really nice job in terms of uh, picking out where he thought the symposia that were already set, where they would fit in. And also he had done a really nice job in looking at the 500 abstracts that didn't fit in the symposia, um, putting them into geographic areas or topical areas or taxonomic areas. And so um, I was both relieved and surprised that we were able to really put together I think it's a coherent program within a couple of days. So it is really impressive to hear that that putting together this scientific program took just the two days. Of course, many more days going into the arrangements organization and, of course, the reviews of the abstracts um, that were submitted. But just this finalization of the program over a two-day period is, is quite impressive. And especially when you, for all the participants at the Congress, think about five or six complete days full of science, you know, with multiple concurrent sessions, all kinds of things going on, um, for all of that to come get together in such a short amount of time is, is really impressive. And uh, about the scientific program, you can hear a little bit later in this podcast, Dr. Steve Shapiro gets a little bit more detail into that, um, not a huge amount. But of course, the scientific program is available online for anyone who's interested in checking that out. So in the next segment of the interview, Dr. Covert goes on to tell us about the final preparatory stages, those moments just before the beginning of the Congress when all the organizers um, and volunteers are anticipating the Congress and there's a lot of excitement but also nervousness about how the event's going to end up going down. And he also gives us his perspective on how important it is to look at the Congress. Of course, it's a scientific Congress, but also in the way that it's embedded within this larger social event and how important it is for people to actually have a good time um, in order for them to consider that the Congress was a, was a success. So here's his, his thoughts on that. When I got back to Vietnam and back to Hanoi, it was just two weeks before the Congress or three weeks before the Congress. And at that stage, I could say that the local organizers were in a, a pretty sincere panic. Um, and it wasn't a panic because we weren't ready. It was a panic because of investing so much time and effort over the last couple of years. You really want the, the Congress to be good. And um, Steve Shapiro in Texas, uh, Wen Meng Hiep, uh, my primary counterpart here, I was often in Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, we were communicating online every day, occasionally on Skype. I was talking to Hiep on the phone most days. And... Um, there were a series of issues that were coming up, none of them which were daunting, and none of them really focused on the scientific program. There'd be, can the banquet accommodate 310 people instead of 295? Or uh, should the free flow of beer be for 90 minutes or two hours on the, on the um, session, I mean, the opening reception? And I love drinking beer and I love eating, um, but my baby was a scientific program, so daily I was frustrated in that um, I knew that, this, that the program was in place, um, but we were dealing, again, this is the eye-opening experience for me, that the scientific program is embedded in a large social event, and uh, I also wanted people to have a good time. Um, when Steve got here just three days before the Congress, uh, we sat down, and, um, and there were a lot of points of contention's too strong of a word, but of disagreements between uh, the local organizers and what Steve thought should be done. And we sat down and started talking, and I decided to walk away from the table instead of, I'd, I'd spent two years being a mediator between cultural boundaries and 
business things I didn't understand. Uh, I walked around and came back, and Steve walked over me, to me and said, oh, everything's great. The, the, uh, the local organizers are on board for everything I recommended. And then Hip, my primary counterpart, waved me over and said, Bert, we have to talk. And I thought, uh-oh. We went down, had a cup of coffee, and he goes, oh, Steve agrees with everything I said. And it was funny in that I watched the first part of the discussion, and they weren't saying the same things, but they were able in a half an hour to come to agreements where they both essentially thought that what they had said had worked out. So great little anecdote there from Dr. Covert. We're also very pleased at the way this conference came together, you know, not only for the participants, who no doubt had a great time at the Congress in Hanoi and IPS, but also for what it might mean for Vietnamese primatology and for science more generally in Vietnam. And so to end this interview, we wanted to get Dr. Covert's perspective on that. I think it's been a great success, and, uh, and I think it's been a great success for uh, Vietnamese scientists. Um, like many people here, I fully appreciate that people around the world all are equal in cognitive capabilities, all are equal in the ability to learn techniques, to use equipment, and what sets us apart often is access to opportunity, to equipment, to materials. I've been working in Vietnam since 1998, and I've, uh, I fell in love with Vietnam within a few hours of being here on my first trip. That I've got extended families here of students, of their spouses, of their children, um, and they're as close to me as my, my, my family in the United States. And I've... My feelings have been heard over the years when I'm at meetings and people in developing countries are discussed as um, less than full partners in when we talk about conservation or science. And it's been a goal of mine over the last 15 years to get my Vietnamese colleagues and students to international meetings because invariably they discover that their skill set is just as good as any one other skill set and that their science is just as good and that the conservation challenges are often even more daunting. Two nights ago after the top 25 endangered uh, workshop where Vietnam again was unfortunately disproportionately represented in having animals really uh, facing the possibility of extinction. We retired to a room upstairs and I was sitting there with my wife with seven or eight young Vietnamese scientists. I say young, they're between 25 and 40, so uh, young compared to me. And they're really the future of Vietnam conservation and science. And I was so pleased that they were all sitting uh, talking about things, all cordial conversation, getting along with one another, yet disagreeing about all sorts of things. It was a, a, a classic good example of scientists chatting about things, uh, feeling comfortable uh, stating opinions um, that might be in a minority. And I knew at that moment that there had been a real crossing a threshold in Vietnam. And then today we met with uh, Russ Mittermeier, the director of Conservation International, um, and said it was really important now that Vietnam have a Vietnamese representative on the executive committee for the uh, primate species group. And, um, and I think it's important that Vietnam be represented by a Vietnamese person, not by Russell. Well, you can do it if you want to, Bert. And I, I, I think it's time for the, the Vietnamese have, have earned the right. And I have, having attended a number of congresses over the years, um, I think this one is right there with all the others in terms of being a, a real success. And so um, I think there's a real bright future for uh, science, primatology in Vietnam, ranging from captive studies to field ecology to conservation to genetics, uh, all, a whole range of 
topics that capture what contemporary primatology is. And, um, and I also think that while there are a number of species which are really in dire straits, um, I wouldn't return each year if I didn't think there was the uh, not only a chance but a high likelihood of success for conservation. So I think uh, Vietnam's a country that not only has a rapidly developing economy, um, but the skill set of the scientists um, and their capacities are, have developed even more rapidly the economy. That I, I, the Vietnam's a developed country when it comes to the ability to take the leadership role in, in all their um, projects across the country. And my simple hope is, as the years go on, that my Vietnamese students and colleagues will allow me to come along and tag along and see what's going on and, and help however I can on projects. So that was Dr. Bert Covert, chair of the organizing committee for IPS 2014 in Hanoi, Vietnam, who we'd like to thank very much for sitting down with us and sharing that interesting story about how this thing came together. In our second interview, in this installment of the podcast's coverage of the IPS 2014 Congress in Hanoi, Vietnam, we're joined by Dr. Steve Shapiro, who's Associate Professor at the MD Anderson Cancer Center's Michael E. Keeling Center for Comparative Medicine and Research in the Department of Veterinary Sciences. Now, for all the IPS members, he's also, importantly, Treasurer and VP for Membership of the International Primatological Society. So we sat him down here to talk about this year's Congress and what we might expect from IPS Congresses in the future. Now, for anyone interested, we also did interview Dr. Shapiro um, two years ago at the IPS Congress in Cancun. That was the 24th Annual Congress. And in that interview, he talks also about that Congress in addition to his own research at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. So for anyone interested, please do check out that podcast. In the meantime, here's Dr. Shapiro talking about this year's Congress. We're at the tail end of the 25th Congress of the International Primatological Society, which is taking place and took place in Hanoi, Vietnam. We had over 900 registrants, including guests, volunteers, and uh, the local arrangements committee. And the approximate cost of this Congress was around $360,000. So we're hoping to make a small amount of profit on this, this Congress, but there's no guarantee. For those of you who do remember the interview with Dr. Shapiro two years ago about the Cancun Congress, you also remember that he was quite disappointed to, to announce that that was the first conference in at least his history of involvement with the IPS um, that turned in a loss, unfortunately. And so we hope for better results this time. Now here, Dr. Shapiro is going to go on talking about the scientific program. We basically had about 900 abstracts submitted and included in the program, about 45 symposia, somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 to 600 oral presentations, and about 300 poster presentations. Uh, We allowed our registrants to submit as many abstracts as they wanted to, and therefore some people gave multiple oral presentations for future Congresses where we'll have fewer time slots for oral presentations. We're going to have to limit each individual to a single oral presentation. There should be no limit on on poster presentations, but oral presentations are likely to be uh, limited. Uh, One of the things that I've noticed over my historical 
dealings with the International Primatological Society is that the focus of the topics of the presentations have changed over the years. We had a fair number of disease and parasite type talks this year and a fair number of microbiota talks, which we really haven't had in the past. In the old days, it was kind of straight behavior, grooming and dominance, those kinds of things. But with technological advancements, we've really um, moved in a slightly different direction and diversified a fair bit. Now, for anyone who knows me or my research, you'll probably have guessed uh, that I was quite pleased to see this diversity in, in disease and parasite talks at the conference. So I, I fully agree with Dr. Shapiro here that that was, uh, that was a great part of the Congress. In addition to the other things that he mentioned, like the new methodologies that were presented in certain sessions, as well as the developing field of primate microbiome studies, um, but there was so much else going on at the conference that was really uh, a pleasure to be there and to, you know, to see a lot of these different um, works being presented. Now, one of the important missions of the International Primatological Society as an international society is to ensure that there are people contributing to the conference and to the scientific ideas from all over the world. And so here, Dr. Shapiro is going to talk about how well IPS accomplished those goals at this Congress. As I mentioned, about 900 participants from 55, 55 different countries. Uh, pretty typical for IPS. You know, many of the countries had just a single individual. But of course, United States, Japan, Germany, those kinds of places had many participants. Since this was a Congress that took place in South Asia, Southeast Asia, we had a very strong representation of individuals from Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, and of course Japan as well. So overall I believe the Congress has been a success and it's important that these Congresses are successful for the future of the International Primatological Society as there are some financial uh, benefits to running these congresses. And as Dr. Matsuzawa has mentioned many times in his presidential communications, continuity, collaboration, and commitment are the types of things that you see most at these meetings where individuals get a chance to renew friendships, that's the continuity, uh, a chance to build new projects, obviously collaboration. And we are always trying to get we are always trying to get new individuals committed to the society. These meetings don't happen on their own. We need three, four, five people that really are crazy for IPS to do the work. So we apologize for the bit of chaos in the background there towards the end of that segment. Um, obviously, building new friendships and the idea of spirit of collaboration um, can lead to interruptions to the podcast uh, on location, uh, but never mind. So... We also agree that the conference seemed to be a great success and, and so much work going into putting that all together by the people on the ground, the organizers, and the volunteers. So there was a host of young undergraduate students, um, Vietnamese students from local universities that undertook that great task of, main, of making sure that everything was running smoothly and did a fantastic job. And Dr. Shapiro, as he normally does, during the General Assembly, brought them all into the room, and um, they received a nice, warm standing ovation from the participants of the Congress, well-deserved. So we thank them for that. So now Dr. Shapiro is going to get into a little bit about future Congresses, particularly the next Congress uh, in 2016, which is set to appear in Chicago. Our next meeting will be in 2016 at the Navy Pier in Chicago, 
We're anticipating 1,400 participants at that meeting. Uh, that number comes from the 1,600 that attended the last time we met in the United States, which was 1996 in Madison, Wisconsin. So like Madison's meeting, this will be a joint meeting of the American Society of Primatologists and the International Primatological Society. They've already chosen for a, th a theme for the meeting, but unfortunately I can't remember it at the moment, so we'll have to leave that be. Uh, we always strive to keep registrations fees down as low as we possibly can. Range country members and student members only pay 60% of what full members pay for their registration, and we will continue uh, providing financial support for range country and student students as best we can. And the last thing I'll say is that in 2018, the bid has been accepted for us to meet in Nairobi, Kenya, and we'll be meeting at the UN compound in Gigiri, Nairobi, and everything is in place for an absolutely fantastic meeting. As you might expect, the UN has outstanding conference facilities and will be providing many services to us at no cost. So just backtracking one second, the Chicago meeting is likely to cost a total of $620,000. Remember, this one was about $360,000. And when we go to Nairobi, because of the very good deal we're getting with the UN, it will probably only cost about $300,000 again. We're planning on 800 people as our anticipated enrollment for the um, Nairobi meeting. So that was Dr. Steve Shapiro, Treasurer and VP for Membership of the International Primatological Society, talking about this year's Congress and those to come in the next four years. Now, just to back up a second here, he did mention that there was a theme already selected for Chicago 2016, but I've just received an email from Steve Ross, organizer for that conference, and that may not be the case, so we'll just have to leave it there. Sorry, Steve. But for anyone who wants to stay abreast of information for the upcoming Congress in Chicago, there are a couple of web sources for that information. You can go to their official website at www.ipschicago.org. Um, as yet, there is not very much information on the site, but more to come, assured from Dr. Steve Ross. And on their Facebook page, uh, IPS Chicago, which is being updated regularly. So that's going to about wrap things up for this edition of the Primate Cast. I'd like to thank all of our guests once again for joining us. And to all of you listeners out there, do stay tuned for news of our next podcast in which we talk to Tom Gillespie, Julio Cesar Bica Marquez, and Joe Belitsky about the important issues of infectious disease and other microorganisms in primate conservation. You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.ciasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the Primate Cast.